Please take your Bibles now, if you have them, and turn with me to the book of Revelation. Today we are in Revelation chapter 14, and we will read verses 6 through 13 as we continue to consider this, this vision, this fourth vision in the book of Revelation that began in Revelation chapter 12 and will end at the end of 14 on kind of bleeding over into the very beginning of, her, of chapter 15 as well. We have seen the dragon and the beast of the dragon attacking the church and using the various means at their disposal to do that. We have seen God sealing once again his people for protection. And today we will compare and contrast the eternal destiny of the people who we saw in chapter 13 uh, verses uh, 11 through the end of that chapter, worship the beast and those who worship God. And so as we consider those things, let us read uh, Revelation 14, beginning in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, every tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. The second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed, are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Let us pray. God of wisdom, God of might, God of power and God of strength, we come before you today seeking to hear from you, seeking to be changed by you, and seeking your Spirit to give us understanding and to draw us to holiness. Show us who you are in this passage. Show us who we are in this passage. And show us how the work of your Son, the second person of the Trinity, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, bridges the gap between those two truths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is a toddler's favorite question? Why? Why? It's hard to maintain a loving attitude with your toddler when you are constantly being asked why. Mommy, Daddy, what color is the sky? It's blue. Why? Because that's the way God made it. Why? Because he's wise and powerful. Why? You get it. We've all experienced it. The call of the book of Revelation is to, main, is the, is to maintain our obedience and faithful witness in an ever increasingly and hostile world. But why? Why? Because God is the loving Father who looks down on us and points us to the why. And the why is that we are covered 
by God's eternal gospel. So we are to take heart and to pursue that faithfulness and obedience. This opens up with uh, another angel. It says, John says that he saw another angel flying in midair. And that should lead us to ask the question, where was the first angel if we saw another? Well, most likely this, the, the first angel was uh, back in Revelation 8, 13, where the angel was called an eagle. And, and we look back to that because there are some similarities to that. There was a proclamation that came from the, the eagle, spoken words, uh, speaking uh, words of woe, the three woes that those who were affected by the last three trumpets would experience. We also see that the angel and the eagle in Revelation 8 were flying in midair as they proclaimed. And this points us uh, to the fact that this is a message that would be heard far and wide as the angel proclaims in midair the message that he has or that they have. We have three angels here um, proclaiming a message. Well, what is the message of the first angel? What well, says here that the, the angel proclaims the eternal gospel, or actually literally it says he gives the good news of the eternal good news. He gospels the eternal gospel. And what is this eternal gospel that he gives? Well, it's summarized in the phrase that judgment is near, that the time is short and that judgment has come. Now, This is something that we don't often think of as good news, good news that judgment is near and that every tribe, every language, every nation, every people will undergo God's scrutiny, will undergo God's examination. And the the good news is that that time is short. He goes on in explaining the good news with the second angel who follows the first angel to proclaim That fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Who is Babylon that the angel refers to here? And in John's time, Babylon would have been the historical empire, Rome, as we'll see later on in in chapters that follow in this chapter 17 and chapter 19. Earlier in history, Babylon was the historical empire that destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple when God brought his judgment upon the nation of Israel. But in our time, as we seek to apply these words to ourselves, Babylon is, as author Bill Mount says, it is the spirit of godlessness that in every age lures people away from the worship of the creator. That spirit that is out there that says, worship this, worship the things of the world instead of the creator of the world is the spirit of Babylon. And and we're told that what Babylon offers is the drunkenness, the mind numbing, mind altering sense of her adulteries. Adulteries is contrasted with uh, the earlier passage in uh, verses one through five of chapter 14, where those who are sealed or those who did not defile themselves with women, but kept themselves pure. And as we looked at that last week, we talked about how that is a reference to idolatry. Adultery in the scripture oftentimes is a picture of people who worship idols rather than worship God. 
And so Babylon is that sense of godlessness in the world that draws people away from the worship of God and to the worship of idols. You ever realize that one of the reasons sin is so popular is that there is a hit, a hint of excitement and exhilaration that comes from giving in to the things of this world that, that promise the salvation and the relief that only God can give? Why is the drug problem in our culture so bad? It's because if, unless, unless it's a, a need that you have to, like a, a pain, the opioids, the, if you have pain, uh, if you do not have pain, excuse me, your body builds a dependence the more you seek after that hit, that exhilaration of the drug. And you need more and more and more until you cannot function without it. Sin is very much the same way. Idolatry is very much the same way. The more you embrace sin, the more you embrace idolatry, the more you need of it to keep distracting you from the difficulties and the pains of this world. The angel declares that the kingdoms of this earth, the the, the spirits of godliness in this world that seek to draw us away from God and draw us to worship and idolatry will fall. They will be judged just as they have sought to draw people away. They will be judged by God. It is so sure that that John declares that this future event is he declares it in the past tense. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And just as Babylon the great has given the wine of her adulteries, we see the third angel come to declare That if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on the forehead or on the hand, he will drink a wine, but it is the wine of God's fury, the wine of God's wrath, and they will drink it full strength. John here takes imagery from Jeremiah 25 that we read earlier and other places in Jeremiah and Isaiah to show the picture of God's wrath being poured out upon the nations. It's a picture of a, of a cup of wine filled with full strength, bottom of the barrel type wine that is boiling and bubbling and burning as it is poured out. And it's poured out full strength on those who refuse the worship of the lamb and seek to worship the kingdoms of this earth and the systems of this world that seek to draw people away. You know, we live under God's judgment now. We see pictures of God's judgment in the fall, the the effects of the fall upon the earth. We see it in God's declaration that death entered because of sin. We see it in natural disaster. We see it in just the difficulties and the hardships of living in this life. But we see God's judgment in this world diluted. Oftentimes, Uh, In the Old Testament and in the New Testament times, wine that had been left too long would get very bitter, very difficult to drink, and it would be watered down so that it could be taken, so that it could be drank in a pleasurable way. The nations, when Jesus returns, will not have the opportunity to have the wrath of God diluted as it is now. Here it is diluted with his common grace, with his mercy, with the free offer of the gospel. 
As I was reading from Jeremiah 25 earlier, it was a, the picture of Jeremiah handing the cup of God's wine to the nations to be judged. Yet we see that same picture in the Gospels as Jesus at that, at that last supper, as he is with the disciples, he himself takes the cup of wine in his hands and he hands it to the disciples. But is it, is it a cup of judgment? No, it's a cup of salvation. It's a cup of grace. It's a cup of mercy because he was getting ready to take the cup of judgment upon himself on the cross. And the picture of judgment that John gives here is is a horrific picture. It's a picture of God's fury. It's a picture of torment, of of burning sulfur. If you've ever burned sulfur, it gives off a gas that's colorless, odorless and tasteless. And not only it is a violent fire that burns, but it gives off this, this gas that burns the eyes, that burns the lungs, that burns the nose. It's a reminder that this torment, this judgment that is coming will be both a spiritual and a physical torment throughout all eternity. We're reminded that this is also a torment that is experienced in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. There's a a falsehood going around today that hell is the absence of God. Hell is not the absence of God. He is omnipresent. There is nowhere that God cannot be. Hell is the experience of the fullness of God's holiness without the mitigation of his common grace and the love that he gives us today. It is an eternity spent, as Isaiah said, when he was taken to the throne room of God, it is an eternity spent saying, woe is me. I wish that I would disintegrate as I stand here as an unholy person in the presence of a holy God. The torments of hell is life lived under the fullness of the curse and the fullness of the presence of a holy God and his holy angelic servants. John describes the judgment in horrific terms. And these terms do borrow from the Old Testament accounts of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as we read these, we are tempted to fear But just as John describes the glories of heaven in inadequate human language, he describes the horrors of hell inadequately as well. These three angels declare the eternal good news that judgment is near. But nowhere in Scripture does God ever declare the bad news without also declaring the good news. There is a way to have this judgment pass over. And it's given to us by the first angel. The first angel says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. To fear God means to give him the reverence, honor and worship due to his name because he is God, the creator. He is the God who has made all things. He has made you and he has made me. And because he has made us, he has the right to set the rules for how we live and how we best glorify him. It says to give him glory. This is more than just worship. This is a Hebrew saying that is parallel to our courtroom oath. I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Fearing God and giving him glory is that dual call that we have seen throughout the book of Revelation to live obediently and faithfully proclaiming the truth. 
And what is that truth that we proclaim? It is the truth that God is the creator. And as we just said, that he is the one who has the right to set the rules for how the world and how the people of the world live in his presence. The truth is also the fact that you and I, beginning with Adam and Eve, you and I have looked at God's rules and we said, nope, I'd rather live by mine. I'd rather rebel against the king and creator of the universe. And I would go my own way, set my own will, set my own rules, declaring ourselves as petty kings in the presence of the eternal king. And in light of that, in light of that sin, God declares judgment upon humanity for their sin, but he did not leave us there. He sent his son to live, to die, to be raised again so that we might have salvation, so that the bridge of reconciliation between holy God and sinful man might be bridged. And that those who believe, those who embrace, those who turn from their idolatries and turn to God can be redeemed, set apart, declared legally righteous and forever holy so that they may live in the presence of God when Jesus returns. And that's why judgment is good news. It's because judgment The declaration of judgment does not come by itself. It comes with the declaration of the hope of salvation, the hope of life eternal with God. And so the angels declare the good news of judgment. But another voice comes from the heaven and declares not judgment, but blessing. We see in verse 13, then I heard a voice from heaven say, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Blessing is a sense of wholeness which can only come through being united to Jesus. So that's why it says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And it's blessed from now on, not those who die from now on. From the moment that we put our trust, our faith in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are blessed by God. We are made whole by God. We don't feel the wholeness. We won't feel it fully until Jesus returns, judges the wicked, blesses the righteous. But the truth is that right now, brothers and sisters, you and I are blessed by God if we are united to Christ. We see this blessing as being united to Christ gives us strength to have the patient endurance that is called for in verse 12 and to follow in obedience our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The blessing also comes in the form of rest and reward. If those who are wicked get no rest forever and ever or are tormented day and night as they live life under the full weight of God's holiness and curse those who are in the Lord, those who are united to Jesus Christ will live in eternity working in the presence of God without any effect of the curse. It's not just some, as one commentator put it, we don't spend eternity as cloud potatoes. We are couch potatoes here on this earth. We don't spend eternity as cloud potatoes. We have a job. We have work to do for God throughout all eternity. But we will experience that work without the curse. I remember one time, it was the last time we planted a full garden. Our neighbor offered us a 
10 by 10, 15 by 15 spot in the back in his backyard. Phil came and tilled it up for us, got it all good and nice. We got everything planted, everything was going great, and then we went on vacation. And when we came back, the only thing you could tell was a garden, was the stuff that was around it to keep the deers out, and every foot or so there was a stake sticking up out of the weeds that supposedly had a tomato plant tied to it. Can you imagine gardening in the new heaven and the new earth without the curse? That once you weed, it is weeded? That your work is not futile, it does not rust, it, does, it is not destroyed? How much more restful would our work be if creation did not fight back? We experience, rather than the full weight of the curse, we experience the full relief from the curse. As we too live eternity in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, but in the presence of their grace, in the presence of the Lamb's forgiveness and righteousness, rather than in the presence of his judgment. We will rest from our labors contrasted to those who are tormented and get no rest forever. We are also rewarded. It's hard to see there, but it is there in the phrase for their deeds will follow them. I had to chuckle to myself as we were in Sunday school today and Bruce brought this fact up. You ever heard the statement? Maybe you've said it yourself. You know, everybody remembers every single mistake. No one remembers all the good stuff I've done, but make one mistake and nobody forgets. The world works that way, but God doesn't. Faithfulness and obedience in this world is oftentimes ignored by the world. It's forgotten by the world. People go around today and say that Christianity has done nothing but mess up the world, forgetting that if it were not for Judeo-Christian ethics, we wouldn't likely have things like hospitals. We wouldn't care about health care except for the most wealthy among us. We wouldn't think about things like grace and forgiveness and love. We would be like cultures without the gospel that oftentimes are focused on violence and retribution. The world forgets all the good, all the faithfulness, all the obedience that God's people seek to live by. But God doesn't. God knows all your faithfulness. God knows all your obedience. And you will live with the God who looks at you and sees you as holy and obedient and faithful. You will live with him for all eternity. While he will not hold your sins against you because of Jesus, he will forever remember and reward your faithful works that were done for him in Jesus. In Jesus, your works are seen by him as sweet sacrifices of praise. As we studied earlier, that the smoke of our prayers, the smoke of our obedience goes before God, is mingled with the incense of Christ's obedience, and then goes before God as a sweet-smelling sacrifice. Contrast that with the torments of those who have been judged that rise before God day and night. He remembers their sins. He remembers your goodness. You and I experience the blessings that are promised by confessing and repenting and turning to Jesus. 
and they are our only hope. Our only hope to avoid the judgment that is promised earlier in this passage as we embrace the eternal gospel of God. So why are we faithful? Why are we obedient? Number one, because God calls us to it. Number two, because united to Christ, we are able to be faithful and obedient. Number three, because God rewards it with his rest and his remembrance. And I want us to think for a moment one more time about that phrase, eternal gospel. We know what good news is. We know it's the good news of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, offered to all, embraced by some. But why eternal gospel? Why set it apart as an eternal gospel? There are several reasons, but I think most importantly, the the most important reason for us today, it's an eternal gospel because it comes from an eternal God. Greg Beale says that it is an eternal gospel because it is immutable and eternally valid. And it is immutable and eternally valid because God is those things as well. God is immutable. What does that mean? It means he does not change. As we learned in Revelation 1, he is the God who is, the God who was, and the God who is to come. The author of Hebrews says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes. That means when he set his love upon you, it doesn't grow or shrink because of anything that you do. It is a perfect love that has been perfect from the moment he said, I will love you. It means that his promises are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. He promised all the way back in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned. He promised that he would provide redemption and reconciliation through the seed of the woman. And Jesus came to offer that reconciliation, that redemption. So many times we get caught up on the fact that, okay, back when I was eight or 12, or 26, or however old you were when you prayed that prayer or felt the the release from the weight of your sins. We get hung up on that, forgetting that the gospel is important for us from that moment all the way into eternity. We will spend eternity looking into the depths of, of the glory of God's grace in the gospel that he offers. It will be just as valid and permanent to you in a million years as it is today. And it will be those things because God is the eternal, unchangeable God who keeps his promises and will continue to keep his promise into eternity. Take comfort, brothers and sisters. God sees, God remembers your faithfulness. God remembers your obedience and he will give you rest into eternity. But take heart to those who do not believe. Time is short. The hour is near. Turn to God, fear him, and give him glory. Let us pray. To the great God and Father, we overflow with worship to you. For those who embrace you, we spend this life tormented, and yet we will spend eternity in rest, and in remembrance, being remembered by you. So fill us with the hope of that as we move forward to glory. Fill us with the joy that can only come from that eternal gospel. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this week, take this blessing upon you. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you.